Just as we began this series about the Ten Commandments with Moses on the mountain, we end it with a visit to another mountain. Join Dr. Brown as he takes us to the Sermon on the Mount and shows us how God's ten words are fulfilled in Jesus. This is Hearing is Believing. I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And Katie and I met in the mountains of North Georgia. And one of the things that we would love to do back then is we would go hiking. One of my favorite pictures of us is, is uh, someone along the Appalachian Trail took a picture of us looking over one of the vistas there. It's a vista called Preaching Rock, and that's one of my favorite pictures of us. But what I want to do today is I want you to put on your hiking boots this morning. I want you to put on your hiking gear and be prepared to walk through some of the vistas of God's revelation. And so this morning, I have you turn to Matthew chapter 5 because... I want you to have, we've been looking at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, but I want you to look at another mountain this morning, a mountain in Matthew 5 where the Bible says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, And so throughout this summer, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Ten Commandments. We've been looking at the foundation of our Christian teaching. And we've been looking at those Ten Commandments in a particular tone. And that particular tone that we've been understanding the Ten Commandments has been in a tone of redemption. The law of God was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. It was given to a people who had just been saved from slavery, who were a people who were on their way to perfect redemption. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 19 that they were to become a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. But because of the hardness of their hearts, they went from being a kingdom of priests to being a kingdom with priests. And so they were unable because of the hardness of their hearts to obey. And so God continued to teach them a certain rhythm. He set out on a redemptive plan, continuing to chisel the hardness of their hearts away and teach them to sing the rhythm of grace. You see, God made a promise long before we encounter Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. God made a promise. And if you don't understand the promise of God, then you'll never rightly understand what Exodus chapter 20 is all about. God made a promise long ago. It was a promise to Eve's son. A promise that Eve would have a son who would come. And that serpent in Genesis 3 that's pictured as infiltrating God's good creation, that serpent who, uh, who uh, tempted and caused sin to increase, the Bible promised that one day that serpent would have his head crushed. And the one who would crush the head of the serpent would himself be bruised. But it's through his stripes that the healing would come. Healing would come to broken humanity. Through his brokenness, he would be able to put broken humanity back together again. So here's what we're doing this morning. This is the last sermon in our series for the summer in the School of Faith. And we're looking at the sort of the epilogue. We're trying to tie everything together. Of course, you realize Exodus chapter 20 is not the last chapter in the Bible. The people who gathered at the mountain in Exodus 19 and 20 stay at the mountain until on into numbers. But eventually they leave the mountain. 
And so we're moving on from the mountain. And as we move on from the mountain, we're moving in hope. Hope that one day our hearts of stone would soon become hearts of flesh. Hope that dead hearts would soon beat again to the rhythm of God's redeeming grace. And I don't know how you encounter the Old Testament. I hope that you read the Old Testament like that. Oftentimes, we treat the Old Testament like it's just off in some corner somewhere, and we have to dust it off. Matter of factly, I have a friend of mine who he doesn't even call the Old Testament the Old Testament. He calls it the Older Testament. I guess older sounds better than uh, saying someone, uh, not someone, something is old. I guess older sounds better than saying that it's old. But uh, he calls it the Older Testament because it's a book that's filled with hope. And the Old Testament paints a portrait of the champion of our salvation, paints a portrait of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want you to understand, even as we, as we go from the mountain this morning, the Old Testament doesn't simply look ahead to Christ. It's not simply looking ahead to Jesus, but the Old Testament proclaims Christ. Through the Old Testament, there is a witness of the living Christ. And from the Old Testament, we understand, as Paul did, that the Old Testament is living and active and profitable for teaching and for proclaiming Christ. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're, we're going to take a hike. That's encouraging, isn't it? The preacher just told you to take a hike. You're going to take a hike, and in this hike, we're going to have a certain pace. I remember hiking in high school with one of my mentors. We would go out, and we'd take a group with us, and we would go hike, and, and uh, we would go hike up the Appalachian Trail. And matter of fact, he's the one that introduced me to Preaching Rock. He might be watching this morning. Colonel Noe is his name. But he would always, whenever I would lead the pack, he would always encourage me. He'd say, Andy, give me an inch. Give me an inch. And that was his call for me to slow down the pace. Well, I'm not going to slow down the pace this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. But I want us to understand that we're going out in the rhythm of the uh, set for us by the Old Testament. And the certain rhythm that the Old Testament paints is a picture of grace. The certain rhythm that the Old Testament sets as its pace is a rhythm of hope and expectation. It's a rhythm of amazing grace. Take, for example, this passage. It's going to be up on the screen for you. You can write it down. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, Moses wrote five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call those first five books the first five books of Moses. That's really neat, isn't it? Or another way of saying them is the Pentateuch. Penta is five. Tuch is teaching. So we have the five teachings of Moses. And those books are also called the law, the law. And so at the end of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have the end anticipating something greater. And remember, the Old Testament is not just some dead static thing in the past. Paul says that those things happen for our benefit so that we could learn from them. And so here we are at the end of the Old Testament and the, at the end of the, of the first five books of Moses, the end of the law, there is this anticipation for something greater. Is there anyone here this morning who's hoping for anything greater? Is there anyone here this morning who's hoping in Christ who is hoping for something greater? The Bible spoken at this moment in Deuteronomy 30 is speaking to our moment today, and from it I want you to hear a familiar rhythm. It's a rhythm of hope. It's a rhythm of joy. 
and it's a rhythm of anticipation. Listen to the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses says at the end of the law, we're far removed from Exodus chapter 20, far removed from the giving of the law. But listen to what he says. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, stop just a minute. You realize what Moses just said? Moses just said to the people, I know that you've received the law, but you're not going to obey. Now that sets out a trajectory in our thought, at least when we're interpreting the law. We understand that the law needs a fulfillment. And the fulfillment doesn't come through Sinai. The fulfillment doesn't come through the Ten Commandments. Moses says to the people right in the, right in the beginning of, Exodus, of Deuteronomy chapter 30, you're not going to obey. And then he's going to tell them why they can't obey. But listen to the text. When all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today. Now listen to this next phrase. How do they obey? With all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. And look at this phrase, and have mercy on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you, if you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And look, at, look who's the one doing all the action here. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And here's how they're going to obey. Here's how they're going to have a heart ready to obey. Look what happens. The Lord your God, there again, who's doing the action? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. You can't obey, Moses says. You need something done for your heart. You need a circumcised heart. And Moses says, God is going to do it. And the Bible continues and says, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. You shall again obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep all of His commandments that I commanded you today. Why? because they have the heart to do so. The Lord your God, the Bible continues, will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your room, the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of the ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as He took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in the book of the law. When you turn to the Lord, hear it again in case you missed it the first time, with all your heart and with all your soul. The law, beloved, is not a matter of external obedience, but a change of heart. The law is not a matter of external obedience, but a change of heart. And so we relate to God on His terms, and He intends to form in us an image that delights in Him. You say, well, where do I get a picture of the proper image that delights in God. How do I know what God is building in me? Well, you simply need to look at the law and see. We need someone, though, to teach us. 
We need someone to come and teach our hearts, not just to give us something that we can put on our walls or hang in our church buildings or put in our Supreme Court or wherever else. We don't just simply need something external. We need a change of heart. You see, Moses, he brought tablets of stone, but someone else would need to come to do an internal work of our hearts. Here's what God promises, even in Deuteronomy. God promises that He's going to raise up another prophet like Moses. Now, that's important. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, it's not another Moses, but it's a prophet like Moses. Listen to the language. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. And then look at this last phrase. It is to him that you shall listen. Isn't that exactly the same phrase that is used at the transfiguration? Here you remember that scene in the Gospels where Jesus is on the mountain and He's transfigured and, and there is Peter, James, and John and there appears Moses and Elijah. And you remember Peter, he's the one that opens his big mouth. Peter opens his big mouth and he says, oh, it's so good that we're here. I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's build three different tents. Let's build one for you, Jesus. You're first, of course. And let's build another one for Moses and then let's build another one for Elijah. And then a majestic voice, the voice of God the Father comes out of heaven and says, this is my son. And then what's the next thing that he says? Listen to him. Jesus is this Moses who's come. And here in Matthew chapter 5, what do we see him? How does Matthew portray Jesus as standing on the mountain to give the law? To not just simply give the law, but to fulfill the law. So here's what I want us to do this morning in in the time that we have. I want us to see this other Moses. And to do so, you say, well, where do we look to find Jesus? Is he under a rock? Is he behind a tree? Where do we find Jesus? Well, we, we turn to Scripture, God's Word, and we find a proper portrait of Jesus in the Gospels. That's what we have in, in our New Testaments. We have these things called the Gospels. Let's name them together. We've all been in Sunday school already. What are they? They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know those four guys, right? Those four guys, they paint a proper portrait of Jesus. It's a true portrait of Jesus. And you know what makes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John unique? They all paint Jesus in a certain way. Every time about Easter and and Christmas, someone comes and says, you know, Pastor, why don't we have uh, the Gospel of Thomas, or why don't we have that lost Gospel of whoever? Why didn't that that make it into the Bible? Those kind of things. You know why? The reason that these Gospels didn't make it was because they painted a portrait of Jesus that was not according to the Scriptures. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to show Himself as the image of God who is the fulfillment of Scriptures. And He is the image of God who has come, listen, to conform us into the image of God. And the way that He does that is through redemption. And so in the Gospels, we have a fourfold witness of Jesus, and they all four paint one portrait. It's not a different Jesus. It's one Jesus. And they all say the same thing about this Jesus. He came and accorded his life, lived his life in accordance 
to the Scriptures. And so here's what I want to do in our task. We could take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we could sort of uh, hodgepodge them together to sort of have a composite image of Jesus. But what I want to do is I want to take you to one particular gospel. I want to take you to Matthew. And through Matthew, I want us to show you how Matthew paints Jesus as the fulfillment of these Ten Commandments. Right? So that's the task before us. I want us to come to Matthew after we've already gone through all the Ten Commandments, and I want us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of the commandments. Now, what does that mean for you who are listening and already keeping a record of time? That means we got ten points, right? I told you, we're not going to slow down the pace, so just stay along with me. But before we get even into that, before we get into that, here's what I want you to know. Remember that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the law giver. He's not only the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the law giver. In other words, Jesus embodies the law as He fulfills the law. And so, the law for Him is not the same as it is for us. But He, in His flesh, fulfills the law for us through His perfect obedience. Hebrews makes this clear. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 5 says. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of the king of righteousness, Malach Sadiq Melchizedek. So Jesus, the Bible says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. And his learned obedience, listen, was for us. So that he himself, don't miss this, he himself is the source of our salvation. Salvation. In other words, it's not like a Christmas gift. I think oftentimes we have this view of Jesus as Jesus is Santa Claus, right? Jesus gives us salvation as a gift. That's not what happens at salvation. Jesus gives us Himself at salvation. And when we receive salvation, we receive Christ Himself. So let's go to the text of Matthew to see the portrait of Jesus who himself is both the giver, the fulfiller, and the satisfaction of the law. You see, where we failed, Jesus fulfilled. And in Him, the justice of God is met. Forgiveness and pardon are guaranteed. Because it's only Jesus, it's only Jesus who can say, listen, I always please the Father. Can you say that? Through Jesus, you can. Only Jesus can say, I always please the Father. And by faith and the power of the Spirit, what's true of Jesus is true of you. Because salvation is not something that you receive external from Jesus. Salvation is receiving Christ. We are, as the New Testament says time and time again, we are in Christ. 
And so now, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, what the Father says of the Son, He now says of me and you. Because we have received Christ. So let's go to the Ten Commandments, all right? You've got them in your mind, right? We can all, uh, someone can volunteer and give us a list of the Ten Commandments. You can all do that, right? You know, one through ten. You're, you're all clear, right? We don't have to go back and teach. Okay, good. All right, good. Consider the first commandment. What's the first commandment? No other gods before me, right? But that's not where the commandment starts, is it? The commandment starts, the commandment starts in salvation terms. Jesus says, in, or uh, excuse me, well, He does say in Exodus 19, but the Bible says in Exodus 19, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, that's where we begin our series in the Ten Commandments. Where does Matthew begin his gospel? Where does Matthew begin painting this portrait of Jesus? Look, for example, in Matthew chapter 2. Flip back just one page. Look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. When Matthew begins telling us the story of Jesus, he begins so by quoting Hosea, who is quoting Exodus. So get that, get that multiple level in your mind. Here we have something going on in the present. In, in, well, in Matthew's case, he's referring to something that happened in the past, living through the life of Jesus. And then he says that was to fulfill what Hosea, the prophet, wrote about. And Hosea was marking something that happened back in the Exodus. Jesus himself is the embodiment and the anticipation of the Old Testament. He is recapitulating or retelling the story of Israel in and of his life. And so what does he say here? Matthew chapter 2, 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus was fleeing Herod, and in that flight from Herod, he himself is the embodiment of all the experiences of Israel. So here's what I want you to write down. How does Jesus fulfill the first commandment? Well, Jesus fulfills the first commandment by being sent to lead a new exodus. Jesus has come to lead a new exodus. So what happens here? Follow again in Matthew chapter 3. It continues this story connecting us back to the exodus. Look at what happens in Matthew chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. Jesus is baptized. But where is he baptized? He's baptized in the same place that the people of God crossed as they entered the promised land. And here we have a clear reference to the Trinity. Don't miss this. We have the Son in the waters of baptism, the Spirit descending like a dove, and the Father says something. Look at what He says. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so now through Jesus, what the Father says about the Son can now be said about us. Look at the text. Look at the language here in verse, verse 15 of chapter 3 of Matthew. It says that Jesus was baptized, Matthew says, to fulfill all righteousness. And that's what happens in your baptism. Maybe I'm speaking to you today and you've not yet followed Christ with believer's baptism. We're having a baptism service next week. You're invited to come and join us to be baptized. But Matthew says that He is fulfilling all righteousness. And when we're baptized, we're identified with Christ. And our baptism is significant. Listen, our baptism is significant because He was baptized. And now through faith, we're in Him. That's what makes baptism so significant. It's the fact that He 
was baptized. And now, through faith, we are in Him. There is not another God besides Him that can save. Only Jesus saves. Because only or no one can do what He has done. No one is the embodiment of the history of the world. Not one life that's ever lived is more significant than the life of Jesus. And this is what makes it so challenging. When, when people reject Jesus, they think that they're just flippantly rejecting Jesus. But when you reject Jesus, you're not just rejecting a man from the past. You are rejecting God's once and for all plan of salvation. So what about the rest of the commandments? What can we learn from the life of Jesus? The second commandment, no carved images. It warns us against making carved images. And and here we face the, the real danger that Jesus ran into with the religious leaders of his day. You know, it's it's religious people that make religious objects. And religious objects are all around us. Even the most irreligious people have religious objects because Everyone was made in the image of God. Consider your home. What religious objects do you have in your home? What religious objects are really the centerpiece of your home? We have a real danger here because we don't want to fall trap into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into. They had erected a God in their own minds, and then Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the second word, and He says that I am the image of God. Jesus is the image of God, and He is the pattern God provides for our understanding of reality. I don't know how big your version of Jesus is, but I hope that your version of Jesus is not a Jesus that you've erected in your own mind, but it's a Jesus that's informed by the Word. He is the pattern that God provides for us to understand reality. And here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to fall prey into patterning a God after our own imagination. You hear the word image there? The people Jesus encountered, they wanted a conqueror to free them from Rome. And what they failed to realize is that they were held captive by an enemy far greater than Rome. They had the the wrong expectations based upon false assumptions. And those false assumptions were, were based upon good intentions. But here's the danger. They, they, they were a group of people that they, they thought that they knew Scripture. They, they went to schools dedicated to this interpretation of the Bible. And some of you here this morning, you may know about the Bible, but you don't know the Bible. I know several, and I could name names of, of people that I know, that they, they know more about the Bible than you do or I do. They're they're Old Testament scholars. They're New Testament scholars. You may encounter a a professor that tells you that they know a lot about the Bible, and they may know a lot about the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. You say, well, how do you know the Bible? You know the Bible by having a true picture of what the Bible paints. And the picture that the Bible paints is this Jesus according to the Scriptures. Jesus comes to these learned group, and He says, you don't know the Scriptures. Could you imagine how that must have felt to a group of religious people, maybe like us here today, all gathered around a purpose? 
And then for Jesus to come and wreck all of our, of our imaginations concerning him, I had that happen to me. I was raised in church, thought that I knew the Bible, but turns out that I knew about the Bible instead of knowing the Bible. You say, what's the difference? The difference is taking your mind and your heart captive to obey the true doctrine as revealed in the Word of God. I remember in, in one class in particular in seminary, I argued with my professor. My professor knew the Bible. I knew about the Bible. But who was he to te- teach me? I mean, I came from First Baptist Church of Atlanta, a significant pastor, a, a, a worldwide ministry. And I remember sitting in his class one day and arguing with this professor. And he finally had enough of this first-year seminary student. And I said to him, I said, the Bible says this. And he says, does it say that? And he stopped the whole class just so we could turn over to where I thought the Bible said what it said. And I was off by that much of a degree. By that much of a degree changed the meaning of the whole trajectory of my thought. Oh, beloved, don't erect a God in your image. You don't want to be accused of of reading your thoughts into God. That's called idolatry. Instead, you want God's thoughts to read you. You want to think God's thoughts after Him. Thinking God's thoughts after Him is called theology. Thinking God's thoughts after Him is called worship. Anything else is idolatry or false worship. Matthew paints his gospel And he says this phrase over and over again. This was to fulfill what was spoken. This was to fulfill what was spoken. He did this to fulfill these things. Jesus is the image of God. And if you don't know Jesus, you will not know God. Let's keep going. The third word, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Here we move the pace a little faster. Look at what Matthew chapter 7 says. A people that say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Pay attention. In your name, cast demons out in your name. Do mighty works in your name. And then Jesus will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So there's a warning against those who take his name in vain. And then we turn to Matthew chapter 18, for example, and we see a very positive use of uh, the name of Jesus available for those who follow Christ. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered, here's the key phrase, in my name, there I am amongst them. And so from the third word, we learn that Jesus is the name of God. He's the image of God. He's the name of God. What about the fourth word? Remember that fourth word? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Matthew shows us that Jesus performed miracles on the Sabbath. Those miracles were forbidden. And he reminds the religious leaders who they were the violators of the second word that the Sabbath was made for man. Matthew 11, 28 Mark this one down in your Bible if you don't have it. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus has come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And then here's the key phrase, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the image of God, the name of God, and he is our rest. 
All right, everybody's still good? You still holding on? We're fixing to make a transition. We've made it through four. We've got six more to go, all right? Number five, the fifth word marks a transition. We move from one horizon to the other in the fifth word. From considering our relationship with God to considering our relationship with one another. Of course, Jesus in and of Himself, He has come to be the point of contact between those two horizons, heaven and earth. But for now, I want to save that point to the end. You'll understand when we come back. So let's look at 6 through 10. And here's what I want to promise you. These next points come as rapid fire. Get ready. And all of these points, 6 through 10, come on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The sixth word, do you remember it? Don't murder. I remember it by, you know, you got a gun here and it's pointing to something. Don't murder. That's what it says. Jesus is our peace. The seventh word, do not commit adultery. Here we learn that Jesus, He is our bridegroom. What about the eighth word, do not steal? We learn that Jesus, He is our inheritance. The ninth word, do not bear false witness. We learn that Jesus is truth. He's not our truth. He is truth. And then we learn the tenth word, do not covet. There we learn that Jesus is all that we need. You remember the way that Matthew ends his gospel? What does he say in Matthew chapter 28? He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is all that we need. Now, let's move back just for a moment. Let's move back to that fifth word. You remember what the fifth word says, honor your father and mother. So, the question that I want you to ask is, is how, how does Jesus fulfill the fifth word? And some of you are tracking so far, and you've said something like, well, that's easy, of course. You've already said He's the Son. He was sent by the Father. It's, it's easy. You may be tempted to say that He came at the will of the Father, and He honored the Father's will in coming. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to be precise, and I want you to avoid that notion. And the reason to avoid that notion is we don't want to read our relations back into God. We want to relate, read His relations back into us. Our relating to one another is not the same way that God interacts with Himself as Trinity. And so, the fifth word deals with our relationships with one another. And it's relationships that have been strained because things are not right between us. Things are not right between us and God. You see, here's what I hope that you'll listen to this morning, you were created, created to have a relationship with God. And the reason that the world is in such chaos is because we won't relate well with one another until we're in a right relationship with God. You see, here's what we know about God from the Scriptures. God has eternally existed as a unity. We call that unity a tri-unity or a trinity. God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. And that Father, Son, and Spirit have a united will. 
And he desires, God desires in, the, in this intra-relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, that relationship is called love, by the way. God desires and decides to share that relationship with us. He shares that relationship with us. You see, the Father sent the Son, not against the Son's will, but willingly. And the Son came and united Himself with us through being born of a virgin. The Son restores our brokenness through the union of God and man in the incarnation. He takes on our forsakenness by becoming what He was not. He, without ceasing to be what He was, becomes what He was not. He takes our forsakenness by becoming sin who knew no sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. He came into a shattered and broken relationship so that He could restore us. In His descending, I love the way the early church says it, in His condescension down, it was really a raising up of us. He came to restore us. A broken relationship between us Honor your father and mother. Family is a place where brokenness plays it out. And God enters into that to restore our brokenness, our broken relationships by Him taking on our forsakenness, by becoming a curse for us. Deuteronomy, again, chapter 21, tells a story. Galatians uses this story in chapter 3 in verse 13 of Galatians. Cursed is every man who is hanged from a tree. Jesus becomes the cursed and rebellious son who is hung from a tree. And from the fifth word we learn that Jesus is our reconciliation. He has come to restore. He has come to redeem. He has come to be our reconciliation. And listen, it's not as if, it's, it's not as if reconciliation is something that we receive from Him. He Himself embodies reconciliation. You receive reconciliation because you receive Christ. And see, here's what I want you to understand. It's only this Jesus only this Jesus, according to the Scriptures, only this Jesus, not the Mormon Jesus, not the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, not the Judaistic Jesus, this Jesus, only this Jesus, the Jesus according to the prophets and the apostles, this good deposit that's been handed down for us to defend, only this Jesus is the hope not only for the Old Testament, but the hope for the world, only this Jesus is our reconciliation, redemption, and our means of restoration. And when we're restored, we're restored not to a former glory, but to a glory that we never knew, a glory that we could, on, a, a glory that we could only imagine. The Bible says that we who believe in Him, we who believe in Him, receive Christ who is the hope of glory. Do you this morning see the mountain peaks of Revelation? The mountain called Sinai where the law was given, 
a mountain which fallen man could never climb. Another mountain stands upon the horizon, a mountain where the Son of God would be crucified. Lo, in the grave He would lay, crushed for our salvation, until on the third day He would rise and ascend with the hopes of a new creation. I go away to prepare a place, He said, and there He would take us farther than the beginning. And from there, the last vista comes into our vision. It's a celestial city built through redemption. There they will be forever with the Lord, with no more chance of sinning, and enjoy 10,000 years as if it were only beginning. Looking at this glory, one might ask, what hope do I have to be admitted? None in yourself at all, for entry belongs on whom the Lamb's name is written. And it's my prayer for you this morning that you will look and say, yes, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending Jesus who has paid it all. And it's all to Him that we owe. You have washed us whiter than snow by sending Jesus, who became a curse, although He didn't deserve it. He took the punishment that was rightly mine so that I could become the righteousness of God in Christ, in Christ. And it's my prayer that everyone within the sound of my voice would know, indeed, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus has paid it all, and it's upon Him that I trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to follow Hearing is Believing on Facebook and rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us at hearingisbelieving.org.